Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Acts 5. As we continue our study in the book of Acts, we're in Acts 5, 17 to 42. And that fourth name, light in the darkness, that's who we're going to call upon right now to ask to illumine his word to us. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at your inspired and errant word, we ask that you would shed light on it, guide us, direct us, allow us to know what we ought to know, believe what we ought to believe. We believe that your word is true. And so take your truth and impart it to our minds and our hearts. As James warns us, we don't want to be hearers of the word only. We want to be doers as well. Father, as we talk about really in some ways a touchy topic, we ask that we would see the biblical truths, that you would prevent me from saying foolish things, and if I do, give us the wisdom to ignore that. We want to be changed by your truth. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Ken Galbraith was a U.S. economist. He worked for a number of presidencies, really in both political parties. He worked as an economist from the 1950s until about 2000 and died in 2006. After one particularly very difficult week, he told the woman who cared for his house her name was Emily Wilson. He said, Emily, I need to take a nap. I really need this nap. Please don't disturb me. If someone needs me, just tell them I'll get back to them. And so Ken fell down, sleep, solid sleep, and the phone rang. Emily picked up the phone, and it was LBJ. Now you know I'm in the late 1960s, the Democrat from Texas, President Lyndon B. Johnson. And if you know anything about LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson, he's not exactly gentle. He's not polite. He just kind of gets to it. And he said, this is uh, President Johnson. Get me Ken. What would you have done? Well, Emily said, Mr. President, Ken is asleep and is not to be disturbed. And the president, not being gentle at all, said, I don't think you caught who I am. I'm the president. Wake him up. And Emily said, I work for him, not for you. <laughs> He'll call you back. When Ken was awoken a few hours later and heard the story, he thought, oh boy, I am going to get an earful. So he called LBJ up. But he was shocked at the demeanor of the president who said, who was that woman? I want her to work for me. <laughs> Why? Because Emily Wilson was driven by conviction. She didn't kowtow to somebody who was more powerful than she was. She did what she thought was right. And we can admire that. 
I think the apostles in today's text, they would admire that. I think of Nelson Mandela. Certainly you know Nelson Mandela. You know that he was a prisoner in three different prisons, was given three numbers. It actually isn't only the Holocaust survivors that were given numbers. His number was 46664, and then he was given two other numbers during the 27 years. Now we could quibble as to why he was arrested. I'm not going to do that. That's not my point today. But he was imprisoned for 27 years. And during that imprisonment, he was confined to a penal area where under the bright South African sun, he would chip limestone all day, every day with a single tool. He had no protection for his eyes. His tear ducts were destroyed. He could no longer cry, actually, and his eyes didn't function as they should. And then on November 11, 1990, he was released from prison very unexpectedly. And the next year he ran for presidency and became president of South Africa from 1991 to 1997. Now, if you know anything about Nelson Mandela, who stood against apartheid, clearly an evil system. He stood against apartheid and everyone wondered what would happen when he was released after 27 years. Would he rail against the government? Would he be belligerent and angry? If he was, that was not his public persona. Instead, he spoke quite eloquently of the nobility, his words, of suffering for righteousness. He once said this phrase, and this is what I want us to hear. He said, to go to prison because of your convictions and to be prepared to suffer for what you believe in is something worthwhile. And I think the apostles would agree. I think of Dr. John Calvin, a Frenchman, the 16th century, the Reformation. He made this statement. He said, it is God's desire to bless the church. And if you read it, you wish there was a period there, but there's not, there's a comma. It is God's desire to bless the church. However, God routinely allows the church and its people to suffer persecution. And he's right. He's absolutely right. What does Jesus say in Matthew 16? He said, take up the cross and follow me. What does he say in 2 Timothy 3.12? He said, if you want to live a righteous, godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. That's what he says. When we get to the fifth chapter of Acts, we're only maybe three months after Pentecost at this point. The apostles have already been arrested twice. They've been beaten. They've been warned not to testify of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the setting of today's text. It's not a one-time occurrence. And I think the Lord would be saying to us today in the United States, prepare yourself 
The culture has changed and continues to change. And you've got to decide, Christ follower, are you going to stand with God and the word of God or are you going to kowtow to society and the winds of lack of morality and ethics? Prepare yourself, Christ follower. The winds have changed. The game has changed. And we've got to decide how we're going to live, whether we're going to live. Are we allowing our convictions to be silenced? Are we damaging our witness by being angry or belligerent? Or are we going to live for Jesus? There's really three choices. Joshua said, choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There are three choices. Choice number one is this. We will allow the morality and the ethics of this day and time period to become our own. And we will not speak truth. We will allow the currents of our day to become our currents the morality of our day to become our morals, the ethics of our day to become our ethics. That's choice number one. Choice number two is we will stand for biblical truth, but we will do so with anger and belligerence and a mean-spirited political activism. And we will lose our witness. That's choice number two. If we are angry and belligerent, we undermine the gospel of grace. We undermine the tenor of scripture and we lose our witness. Or choice number three is we will stand for biblical truth and morality and ethics and we will do so with grace and conviction, not kowtowing to our society and our culture, but we also won't be belligerent and angry. We will allow our voice to be shared, but we will do so in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord or in the manner that we will read about in 2 Timothy 2.1 that is gentle, that is godly. That's the only biblical choice of the three. We're going to live in a day and age where persecution is rising, but it won't be the first time in the church. In the New Testament, there are 16 or 17 apostles. It depends on how you count them. 16 or 17. I won't quibble with you. 17 is right, by the way. <laughs> Let me tell you how most of them ended. Peter. Peter was crucified in Rome under Nero in AD 66, not feeling that it was right to be crucified in a manner that was like his savior, he insisted to be crucified upside down. And that's how he was martyred. The apostle Paul, he also was martyred during the Neronian persecution the same year, AD 66, and he was beheaded. Mark, Mark died in Alexandria. Listen to the places that these people went. He died in Alexandria, Egypt. He was actually tied to a rope, which was tied to a horse. 
dragged through the streets until he died. Luke, Luke was hung in Greece. Philip, Philip was hung in Hierapolis. That would be southern Turkey. John, John was boiled in oil and he somehow survived. And then he was placed on a penal colony in the Aegean Sea where much like Nelson Mandela, he worked in the hot sun almost to the age of 100 or perhaps to the age of 100. We're not sure Polycarp uh, gives us some evidence of his longevity. And then he died. He's the only one on my list, by the way, that did not die a martyr's death. James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was taken to the pinnacle of the temple and he was thrown off and somehow survived. And so they beheaded him. James, son of Alphaeus, was stabbed and clubbed to death in Jerusalem. Bartholomew took the gospel to India, Armenia, Ethiopia, and Arabia. And he was beaten to death. Andrew was crucified, another Andrew, in Greece. Matthias, that was that 13th apostle after Judas hung himself. He was burned alive in Syria. And these are shocking. Unless we take scripture at its word, take up that cross and follow me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we actually shouldn't be shocked when we come to Acts chapter 5. And we're only a few miles or a few hours or a few months from Pentecost. And yet they are suffering again. They are imprisoned again. They're beaten again. Let me pick up in Acts 5. I want to read verses 17 and 18. But the high priest rose up and all who were there with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, that would be the 70 their government leaders with some tinge of religiosity, the high priest is among them, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now think about the setting. The setting is Acts 4, the setting is Acts 5, and in Acts 4, Peter and John are about to enter the temple. They're going through the gate called Beautiful, there's a man that has been there for 38 to 40 years. He has been suffering immeasurably. He has never walked a day in his life. He asked for a handout. And you remember, Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. Rise in the name of Jesus. And he rises and walks. And then the apostles are dragged in to the authorities. And then we get to chapter 5. And you read in verses 12 to 16 that they've done a lot of other miracles. And then they, they are again arrested. They're brought before the 70, the Sanhedrin. Talk about powering up. It's not just one. They're brought before the entire group in front of the high priest, in front of the temple guard. All of them are there assembled in all of their robes, in all of their scowls, looking down at these fishermen. And you can imagine the utter intimidation that these, these men feel. And then they're imprisoned. Why? They're imprisoned because they do the work of God. 
they're in prison because the Sadducees are jealous. Aren't you glad you live in the 21st century rather than the first century? We don't have jealousy as a part of a problem in the church anymore. It doesn't exist. We no longer have pastors that are jealous when another pastor preaches what appears to be an anointed sermon. It never happens. We don't have Sunday school leaders or small group teachers that are upset when more people go to one class than the one that one is teaching. It doesn't happen. We no longer have artists and musicians who are a little jealous when someone else is more gifted or gets the part that one wants. We no longer have leaders who when their shoulder isn't tapped and somebody else is put in a position of authority, they just get kind of angry about it. We no longer have parents or grandparents who when their child isn't chosen, they turn green with envy. I'm thankful that stuff doesn't happen in the 21st century. Because we know better, right? When God moves in that church or through that person, when God moves, we rejoice because the kingdom is advancing. But that's not what happened with the Sadducees. They're jealous. So let's pick up in Acts 5. I want to read 19 to 21. But during the night, they're thrown into prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. This really is divine humor. If you know anything about the Sadducees, they're unorthodox, they're heretical at almost every turn. One of the things that the Sadducees taught is that there weren't any angelic beings. So God, with divine humor, institutes a jailbreak led by an angel. What are you going to do if you're a Sadducee? How are you going to explain that? An angelic comes and springs them loose. Now, what are you going to do if it's your buddy, your friend, your pal, your family member? They've already been in prison a couple times. They've already been beaten. An angel springs you. And what are you going to say to that friend? Don't poke the bear. But sleeping dogs lie. You already got in trouble a couple times. These are warning shots. God's telling you not to do it, but the angel said, go do it. And what does the text say? At daybreak. Can't you let a couple days go by, recuperate? Let the, the anger go down a little bit. At daybreak, they went back to the temple to proclaim Christ. They had some kind of conviction that maybe 2 Corinthians 5.20 is true. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And rather than wait, rather than letting sleeping dogs lie, they poke the bear and they go back to the temple. They've already been beaten. They've already been imprisoned twice. We're only a few months removed from Pentecost. Things are not getting better. And yet they go back and they proclaim the truth of Christ. You know the account. 
Let me pick up in verse 26 and read to 29. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Here's the dance. The dance is, we always serve higher law. And nobody has the right to tell a Christ follower to disobey the morals, the ethics, the biblical truths. Will we obey man rather than God? Of course, we will choose God. But there's another side of the dance. And that's when the government tells us to do something that we don't like, that's not our preference, but it doesn't violate biblical, moral, ethical rules. When the government does stupid, I know, not your government, but when the government does stupid, but it's not biblical, it's not moral, it's not ethical, what are we to do? We obey. That's our dance. Let me read from Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them, remind Jeff, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. We delude ourselves if we think that we live in a more dangerous, more difficult, more corrupt, more immoral government than what existed in the first century New Testament places. We delude ourselves if we believe that. We're not even on the same page. We're really not. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. How about Rome? Rome 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. If that is true, if the Bible is inerrant, then no authority is in their position except by God's sovereign decision. Sometimes God places government to bless us. Sometimes he places government to discipline us. Sometimes he places government to change us, but the government is there and God has given his okay. It doesn't mean he gives it okay to all they do. He just says that he has placed them in authority. And when they tell us to do what is immoral, unethical, or biblical, we always appeal to higher law and we obey God. But when the government does stupid, or doesn't do our preferences, but it's not a biblical, moral, ethical issue. We are told to submit to the governing authorities because no authority has been given to us except by that of the hand of God. Now, there are a lot of biblical examples where the apostles obeyed the government, and there are biblical examples where the prophets and apostles did not. Let me offer a few. 
I think of Exodus chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. Maybe you know the account. We have some midwives that are delivering Jewish babies. And Pharaoh has said, when the baby is out of the womb, kill the baby. It's partial birth abortion. It's what it is. They don't use that word, but that's what we have in Exodus 1, 17 to 21. It's partial birth abortion. And what do the midwives do? They disobey Pharaoh. And what does verse 21 say? It says, and the midwives feared God. And because they feared God, God gave them families of their own. They appealed to higher law, God's law. They disobeyed man. They did what God said is right. And God blessed them for it. I think of Daniel chapter 6. Here we have the Jews that have been carried into captivity. They're in captivity for 70 years. First under Babylon, then Omedo, Persia. And Daniel, who was taken as a child out of Jerusalem. And he's been in captivity almost for 70 years. And he's risen to be the fourth most powerful person. Somewhere between the second and fourth most powerful person in the Medo-Persian Empire. And the king, Darius, not the sharpest knife in the drawer. He says, for the next 30 days, nobody gets to pray to any other God but me. Idolatry. And Daniel turns his face to Jerusalem three times a day. Morning, afternoon, and evening. With windows open, knowing people will see him. Knowing that he will be cast into a den of lions. And he will not obey because it's idolatry. And you remember he's cast into a den of lions. And God shuts the mouths of the lions. And he's brought out. Back up three chapters. In Daniel chapter 3. We're back in Babylon. You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar has made a likeness of himself. An image. And he said at the sound of the music. Everyone is to bow and worship the image. Worship me. And the music plays and everyone hits pay dirt. And there is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're even given another opportunity. And then they're thrown in a furnace that is many times hotter than normal. And a fourth like the Son of Man. That's Jesus, by the way. Jesus is with them in the furnace. And they walk out and there's not a singe on their head. And then we have this text where... They seem to be released from prison. Yes, they're going to face the cat of nine tails, the whip, the scorpion, the 40 minus one lashes, 39 lashes, the most a Jew can give a Jew. It's a horrible beating, but at least they're released. And we say, oh, I get it now. Every time you obey God and every time you appeal to higher law and every time you're persecuted, God will rescue you. Except that's not true. That's not true. That's why I started with the apostles, none of whom were rescued, all of whom suffered immeasurably. We're living in a day and age in which persecution is rising, and don't think it isn't going to rise in our country because it already is. Let me read to you a list. You could find a different list, but I've averaged the names. These are the 10 most oppressive countries to Christianity in the world today. This is the order. North Korea, Afghanistan, number two. 
Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, and India. Last Sunday while I preached in Nigeria, the ninth most oppressive country, while parishioners were in a church, the church was set on fire, and every parishioner, 50 of them, were burned to death. Same country, Wednesday, 90 Christ followers were put to death in Nigeria. In the last three months, only the ninth most oppressive country in the world, in the last three months, we know that a thousand Christ followers have been put to death. We're living in a day and age where persecution is rising and the apostles were persecuted. Let me read back in Acts 5, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They kind of know what happens. They brought them in. They've arrested them. And then a man named Gamaliel, kind of a, a very important individual in rabbinic history. The two most famous rabbis of the New Testament era are Shammai and Hillel. Well, Hillel's grandson is the third or fourth most important rabbi. His name is Gamaliel. He's the one who trained Saul Paul prior to Saul Paul on the road to Damascus coming to Christ. And he stands up and said, hey guys, I'm going to ad lib a little bit, but I think he probably says I'm not for them either. But we've been on the wrong side of God a few times. It never goes very well. It just doesn't go very well. So this is what he says in verses 38 to 40. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Well, almost. They added to it. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then how did the apostles respond? 41 and 42. Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's a biblical dance. There's really only one biblical choice. If you balance Exodus 1 and Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 and Titus 3.1 and Romans 13.1 and Acts 4 and Acts 5 and other passages like that, there really is only one biblical conclusion. We can be unbiblical and we can kowtow to the morality and ethics of our land. And we can say that morality doesn't matter and choosing your gender is your right and intimacy isn't only for a husband, wife in a marriage relationship and we can give up the morality of God and that's an unbiblical choice. We can stay biblical and be angry and bitter and militant and bombastic. And yeah, we'll keep our morality and our ethics and we will win no one to the kingdom of God. We will repel them unnecessarily. 
The gospel is offensive. We don't need to add to the offense of the gospel. Or we can be like the apostles who always appealed to higher law. If God said it, they're going to do it. They're going to believe it. They're going to live out scripture. But they're going to do it with the nuance of the gospel, which is grace. And the nuance of the New Testament, which is grace. Without compromise, but with grace to reach a world as salt and light that needs the gospel. That's really the only biblical choice. I want to leave with three thoughts. The really questions that I've got to ask myself and maybe you have to ask yourself. Question number one is this. Is my highest allegiance to God and his kingdom? Where is my highest allegiance to self and preferences? Where is my highest allegiance to my political persuasion? What is my highest allegiance? Is it to God and his kingdom? If so, then you and I need to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. Second, am I biblical in my approach to government and authority? Biblical obeys the government even if it's not our preference. Obeys the government even if they do dumb. But doesn't obey the government when they mandate what is unbiblical, unethical, or immoral. But in all of it, handles it with grace. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. That's not four categories. That's two categories. The first three words are synonyms. This is a way to underline and bold. It's actually rather rare in the New Testament. Jeff, pay attention. I'm telling you to offer prayer, offer prayer, offer prayer. And how are you to do it with thanksgiving? For all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So to be angry and bombastic and mean-spirited, even if we're on the right side of the issues, is to disobey this passage that says, pray, Jeff, and pray, Jeff, and pray, Jeff, and do it with thanksgiving. And by the way, do it in a godly, dignified, and quiet manner. And I've got to ask myself, is that what I, Jeff, am doing? And finally, have I allowed my spiritual convictions to be silenced out of fear of man? That's that first position. That first position is the one that we're going to be tempted with. And that's to say, you know what? I don't want to stand up and be counted. I don't want people to know my convictions. In fact, I'm not even sure I'm going to be convicted by God's word. I might be changed by society or by my best friend, or those 
that are my buddies. The biblical view is to obey the government until or unless the government tells us to do something unbiblical, immoral, unethical. And then with Peter, we say, is it right to obey man rather than God? I will obey God always over man. Let's pray. Father God, a hard passage for all of us. It's hard because we know that Christianity is now swimming against the current. The moral and ethic of the Bible is against the current. At least that of many businesses, media sources, certain government positions. And that's beyond uncomfortable. But allow us to be like the apostles with dignity, godliness, humility, grace, gentleness, conviction, holiness, steadfastness, commitment. Live godly lives in spite of what is around. May that be the position of our church. May that be the position of our lives. May we live this for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.